Greetings to everybody, and uh, as your host tonight, I just want to um, thank you for stopping in, our regulars, and uh, maybe some other folks will pop in tonight. So good evening, Saints. Officially, it is Tuesday, October the 18th, 2022, and the world around us is becoming an increasingly interesting place. Uh, there are many things which appear to match or at least resemble some of the conditions uh, told, about, told of us in Scripture at the time when the Lord may intervene directly into the affairs of men and nations. We all have our timelines, but you know, the Lord can do what he will. And we're careful to keep our hearts and minds in Scripture and our eyes in, on, on the Word of God and not on the world around us, no matter what's going on. So... It's good to get together. It's good to get together with uh, fellow believers, with fellow members of the body, and just to remember that, that we have a, a calling that is much higher than anything going on on this earth. So anyway, your speaker tonight, uh, this evening, is an ex-papist, Michael Scotto. I am speaking on the city of Greensboro in the great state of North Carolina, United States of America. As to tonight's topic, um, I try to be open as I'm going to think, is what the Lord might put on my heart. I have, you know, my series that I go through, but sometimes I just, you know, Lord, will, will, something will trigger in me. And in this case, it was a number of weeks ago that during the Wednesday night Carolina Bible Group study, Cecil took us over to chapter 1 of Titus as part of his study, and he walked through those verses. And he quoted uh, a verse as he went along, which was Titus 1, verse 11. And this is Titus 1, verse 11. It is whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now, on first thrust, it, it seems pretty clear, but I, I went back and it just, that first part struck me. There's a lot in that whole pa in that whole passage that we could unpack, and, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the whole passage and unpack the whole thing. But I, I, I started garbage trail. I started realizing that there's a lot more there than maybe I thought. Now, hopefully I'm not seeing too much there. I'm trying to be careful not to see maybe what's not there. But I said, I'm going to break this down. So I'm going to look at, try to look at these, uh, the first part of this, this uh, chapter 1 of Titus. And then we're going to you know, we'll look at this verse, we'll kind of pull back, look at the passage, look at the context. And, you know, I started really contemplating as I read this, what is Paul telling me? What is Paul, what is the Lord through Paul speaking to me, right? So the first thing that struck me in Titus 1.11 are the words, whose mouths must be stopped. That's wrong. That's pretty strong language from Paul. As the apostle inspired, who is inspired to give us the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he now says something very striking. Certain mouths must be stopped. So the idea of the mouth being stopped is it's drawn from the Greek word, and my, my Greek is, you know, I, I'll, I'll do the best with my Greek tonight, <laughs> epistomizo. And this is its only use in scripture. And it means to bridle the mouth. You know, we say the mouth, the mouth must be stopped. So to bridle the mouth, right? It's a combination of, of the of words epi and stoma. And if you want to use the Scotto translation, which I do not recommend, uh, that would roughly be upon the mouth. So the idea is that these mouths uh, must have silence forced upon them. So somehow we are called to silence these mouths, right? But how can we do that? You know, is this a physical bridling like a horse? Is this a physical stopping? Right? Um, so the revised version renders this verse as this part as they must be silenced. So that's a good that's a good sense of what it is, of their mouth whose mouth must be stopped, they must be silenced, right? The far above all, done by our friends uh, in England, our fellow uh, members of the body, they have it as who need to be silenced need to be silenced. So the word must, there, translated must, in, in where we started, it's the Greek word day, right? It means exactly that, necessary, proper. So this isn't some sort of suggestion, right? 
So how do we accomplish this silence? So we have a number of answer to get there, right? So at least I did as I went down this rabbit hole. I wanted to be careful. So we start with the imperative word must. So this must day, as we talked about, is used in Ephesians 6.20. And I go there just to show that this, this is a very clear thing Paul is saying, that they must be stopped. They must. It, it is necessary for them to be silenced. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we're very familiar with that in this, in this group, but I do want to read them again and emphasize this word. Uh, it's equivalent, the same word in the Greek. Paul says, and for me, the utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therefore I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So King James, and there is the word ought. That's our word must, right? Paul must do this. This is not some optional thing. This is, Paul, this is a strong calling on Paul's life, obviously, to make known the mystery of the gospel that he is the ambassador for. Right, so now he's turning that to us and saying, their mouths must be stopped. It's, a, it's to all of us. Now, the New Testament for everyone translation, which I don't know much about, but I was just looking at different translations of this part of Ephesians 6, uses, uses this wordage. That's what I'm duty-bound to do. And I really like that. So Paul ought to speak it. He must do it. He is duty-bound. Right. So this is our same word. Uh, that we had in Titus, the same word must. So Paul was committed to speak boldly concerning the mystery. He was duty bound to do so. It was right for him to do it. He must do this. So in the same way, we should heed Paul's words in Titus 1.11 and think of applying that must be stopped. Duty bound to stop. So things that are being spoken... This is, this is a twist on it because we're, we're doing some, we're not proclaiming something, we're stopping something. But in the context, we're going to see that these are things in the name of Christ. They're not ordained of God, but they're spoken in the name of Christ. But some things are not ordained of God at all, and other things are, ordained, are not ordained for this age. So you can have people saying things that aren't of God at all, and you can have saying things that are from God, but they're not. For this age, right? And that's that's where we understand and rightly dividing the word. So we must speak truth ourselves. Uh, I'm, I'm now combining the two thoughts. We, what we take from that is we must speak truth. We pray for God's strength that we would be able to speak the truth of the mystery. And we also pray for God's strength that we would, we would be able to stop untruths. Right? We must speak the truth and we must stop untruths. Right? So there are certain things noted in the text that we're going to see being spoken, which must be stopped. And there are certain things, these certain things are spoken in the name of Christ. So there are certain things spoken in the name of Christ that must be stopped. They have a veneer of faith. They look on the outside as maybe of Christ. They might even originate in Scripture, but we know, you know, that if we rightly divide them, that they must be stopped. Right? So we don't let's pull out the uh, camera a little bit. We don't have to stop the world from teaching the things that the world will teach. Right? We can't stop them anyway. We can't stop things by said by the religions of the world. We can oppose them. We can oppose the lies of say evolution. Or we can oppose the teachings of the Vedas or the councils or whatever. And we can contradict them with the scripture. But we're not called specifically to shut their mouths because we cannot. Right? We can't shut their mouths. And we're going to get to, I, I'm going to talk about what that, what I think that means. So the words we concern ourselves with are words which are a danger to believers. Right? That's Paul's concern. And these are spoken by other people who are professed believers or actual believers possibly. Right? So, now, I'm going through this, and I didn't want to get, I said I wanted to be careful in this passage in Titus, that I didn't look too far into it, I'm going too far, and I hope you can tell I'm being very careful with these words, I'm just really concentrating on what Paul's telling us. I didn't trust my initial understanding, right, I was like, the admonition, I, you know, just, it wasn't clicking exactly right. 
So I said, well, let me go look and see what other people have to say about it. Let's see what other folks have to say about this who are wiser than I. I couldn't really find anything on this verse. I really couldn't. Uh, and I listened, actually listened to uh, part of a message from J. Burton McGee because he had a section on it, but he, he didn't really go into the must-be-stopped part. right? And I couldn't really find anything uh, in Bollinger's notes or, or uh, anywhere, really, with Stuart Allen or, or, or Welch. And, and, and that's why I really searched all of our sites that we know and, and looking for it. I did find one little thing somewhere, which is this is A.C. Gabeline. Now, A.C. Gabeline, he's a dispensationalist, but he's an Acts 2 dispensationalist, right? But he a little bit of context in his commentary. Uh, he says this, quote, those uh, Cretan Jews, or Cretan Jews, however you want to pronounce it, who claimed to have accepted Christ worked evil in the assembly. The apostle demands that their mouths must be stopped. For they subverted whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of base gain. Right? So, in all of A.C. Gabon's writing on Titus, and I just pulled this one, you know, one little sentence out. It's the only time he really addresses it, the only thing I could really find. And he sort of agrees there that he's, Paul is demanding that their mouth be stopped. And for these reasons that are given in Titus, they subvert whole houses, teach things which they ought not to. And uh, they do it for base gain, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too. Uh, so we have a good starting point. We have a fair, fairly clear summation of the passage there. Um, I really can't take issue with Gable on there. So uh, we're going to endeavor to examine this a little more and hopefully shed some light on this verse 11 in the context of Titus 1. So we go, we sally forth carefully, as we always do. Uh, particularly, this is the first time I've really spent this much time in this passage. Uh, so... <clears throat> We're going to get, well, I walked through carefully. I've been over this for I don't know how long now for uh, looking at this. I wrote a short thing on it. It was about two pages. Uh, initially, just to get my thoughts on paper, I put it on my blog, and then I went back and started, and now it's 20-some pages, so I won't be doing all that tonight. But uh, anyway, I, I did want to careful, be careful with it. There are a number of warning passages, right, in the, in the epistles concerning false teachers. You know, we're warned constantly about false teachers. Uh, here in, in Titus 1, Paul is addressing our age. So that is one difference from some of the other epistles. And Paul is addressing uh, this post-Acts age there. Uh, and the chief problem in this age would seem to be those who oppose Paul. Right? You see this very specifically. They're opposing Paul. Now, these are other professed believers. Right? They come in the name of Christ. And so their, their deception is particularly deceptive. Right? Their deceit is particularly deceptive because they come in the name of Christ, and some of the things they might say are true. In fact, Paul compliments them to some degree in, in Philippians, saying some of them preached to make Paul's uh, chains even harsher. They were that much of his enemy, but he was glad that Christ was preached. But in other cases, they completely abandoned Paul's gospel. Right? We know the believers in Second Timothy in, in Asia had abandoned Paul. Uh, they were still believers, but they had abandoned what Paul had been teaching. Uh, that the revelation given to him. And uh, also in Philippians, he calls some believers the enemies of the cross of Christ. And these are all people who came in the name of the Lord. And this is this age, right? So these teachers, they put believers at risk uh, of the reward, right? They, they're steering them away. right? So, and, and, I would, and I would say that losing that reward includes the risk of losing the blessings in the heavenly places and the prize of the high calling. You know, but it also means any rewards for faithful service. It's possible. I mean, there's all kinds of deception going on. Right? So they're handling the word of God deceitfully in some sense, some of them. Uh, obviously, those who do it for, for filthy gain, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But there's also those who handle it carelessly. Right? So there's many Bible students who have fallen into error merely, uh, and they become puffed up because of some assumed understanding. You may run into this, I run into this. Uh, they're very, they're very mocking of some of the things that we teach, and they're very smug about it. Not all of them, but some of them because there's an assumed understanding, right? And I used to be one of those guys, right? I used to be very smug about it because I'd always, well, everybody knows that about the Bible. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows when you die, you go straight to heaven, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, without really taking the time to say, hey, 
what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Right? So I wasn't being deceitful, but I was careless with the word. And then I didn't want to change either. So there's that. And, you know, just as one example of an assumption held by many, I named one, but one, this idea that the church that we're in started at Pentecost. Right? And, and there's also an assumption that the Lord is speaking to us in the Sermon on the Mount. People love the Sermon on the Mount, you know, but they're, they're, until you actually start reading it, I mean, verse by verse saying, really, is this really speaking to me? Right? But this is more careless. This is more careless, I would say, than deceitful. Right? It's something they just want to believe, but they've been told, they never examined it. So, how many contradictions do people hold? I held a number of contradictions. It's what drove me to the truth. Right? It drove me to the truth because I, I, I couldn't understand what seemed to be contradictions in my own belief system. Right? But that was due to carelessness. The reason it took me however long it took for the Lord to enlighten me was my lack of diligence and my carelessness. Now, when I decided to become diligent about comparing these things, then the Lord could, could use me. The Lord could speak to me. Right? So, the careless are one group. But in Titus, he's talking about a deceitful group. Right? So, the chance for error creeping into assemblies, as he says, is greater, I would say, in this dispensation than in all the other dispensations. Any other dispensation, I think the, the, the chance for error creeping in is greater now. In other dispensations, men can go to Scripture, see clear distinctions between nations. They could, they could see clear distinctions than we can see now between commands in Bible. They could see clear distinctions in behavioral expectations in the law between Jews and Gentiles, that sort of thing. They could see all these clear things. Israel had very tangible things that they could see. Right? And even Gentiles could go to the law and see very tangible things. Right? So today, when men run to the scriptures, they will see those distinctions. But those distinctions are no longer applicable in this age. And that causes confusion. So some people just pull back and say, I can't understand it. I'll whatever my preacher tells me. Right? So even when I went to read today to see if Welch said something, I wouldn't necessarily have agreed with him. I was just looking for his thoughts. Maybe he had good thoughts. But again, at the end of the day, it's up to me. It's up to me to pray to the Lord and, and, and take all these things and, and, and make it my own so I can understand it. So in this dispensation, the key is to mark these differences that we see in Scripture. Few do this. And so error has a chance to take a foothold. So, not all errors are serious, right? Some are more serious than others. Here's an example that you might disagree with now, but I don't think water baptism is that big of an error. And the reason being is, uh, in the evangelicals, there are terrible errors in some other areas of Christendom. But for evangelicals, it's a one-time event. They're, they're making a public profession of a private faith, you know, and, and I've taught against water baptism. But I, I just think it's, a, it's not a terrible error, because they do it one time, and they really never... And we'll bring it up again. You know, some somebody goes to the youth group, they get baptized at the age of sixteen, and that's the last you ever hear of it. Right? It, it's part of a package of errors. I call it the error package. Baptism is part of that. You know, but on its own, it's 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 not it's not necessarily going to get in the way of, of someone coming to the truth. It could, but there are more serious errors, right? So, a more serious error, as I see it, can be found in any system that's reliant on on signs and wonders. Dreams and visions, right? And those things were common in the previous dispensations, particularly in the Acts Age, right? This opens the door to charlatans. This opens the door to the kind of people we're looking at in Titus 1. <clears throat> and uh, I was wondering about that, Carolyn. It's like, you're upset, then you come back, you're upset, you come back. <laughs> Maybe I'm upsetting you too much. Uh, <clears throat> give me another chance. <laughs> and, but, you know, so the, char the charlatans come along and they have an opportunity. Right? Because people can be deceived into thinking that they're getting a special revelation. When you have a, when they're looking for signs and wonders, dreams and visions, right? They can be they can deceive themselves, and then they're easily deceived by someone. How, how many people on YouTube or on all these services are, are claiming visions from God and God and God showed me the, the who the bang Christ is and who when the apocalypse was going to begin and God angels came and spoke to me. And they have, they have thousands of followers, and you make one little comment saying, well, I don't know, because this doesn't match, and I'll attack you, you know, and if you've been there, right? So, you know, there are, and they can be getting special revelations, sure, but from, from the wrong principalities and powers, right, currently in heavenly places. So, 
you know, when, when we're talking about the charlatans, I, I think we need to be careful on, on whose mouths need to be shut, uh, that we have to be careful on which fish we're going to fry, right? So, so those who seek to live in the current calling, after we've assessed these dangers, we always understand our own frailty and our own weaknesses. We carry on with the hope and the goal of rescuing those who have fallen under the voice of these false teachers. That's Paul's hope. Right? He wants us to rescue people from false teachers. Right? Not punish them for falling under false teachers, but to rescue them. Right? So some of these false teachers are, are out to self-aggrandize themselves, and that's part of making merchandise of the saints. Right? That's part of this filthy lucre, right? making money off them. Uh, and some, some teachers are just unlearned. I mean, I know some very lovely believers, and I just think that, you know, they, they, they went to a seminary, they graduated, and they never moved from the point, I have a degree, I know everything in the universe. Uh, one sh very short story. Years ago, I was talking, there was a guy who had a blog, and I was just asking him some questions. What about this? And I said, you never thought about that? You never questioned this? You never wondered about this? And he was a retired pastor, and he was in his late 70s, and he said, I settled every issue when I graduated from seminary 58 years ago. That's what he said to me. I said, you've settled every issue 58 years ago. He said, yes, sir, I know I've settled every issue. Okay, nothing I can do with that. Have a nice day. I love you. Right? So, I know he wasn't out for filthy lucre's sake. Right? So he wouldn't fall into that category, but I would steer people away from him, of course. Um, so in Titus 1.11, we're dealing with a false teacher who is trying to make merchandise. He's trying to push them back in context here to some kind of Judaism. Right? And they do this for filthy lucre's sake. Another way to put this, and this is a, this is a good, this, good. I, I took it uh, by looking at the definitions. I, didn't, I don't know Greek. But I like this when I put this together. For the pleasure of shameful gain. Filthy lucre's sake is for the pleasure of shameful gain. Right? So these, take, these teachers take pleasure in their ill-gotten gain. You know, they start out, they might even start out sincerely, but the flesh then comes in. And that's what's going to happen. When you walk according to false doctrine, the flesh is going to find its foothold. Right? This is why we've got to be careful. Because, I mean, I saw this in my own walk. If you're trying to live in the book of Acts, and then you see the contradictions, and it gets confusing, and you don't understand why this is here, and this is there, and this doesn't match up with that, and Jesus, why does Jesus say this crazy thing over here, it doesn't seem to match this over here, then you start stepping back, and that's when the flesh takes over. All right, we'll talk about that a little bit, maybe, if we have time. But, so Paul refers to these these doctrines in Titus 1.14 as Jewish myths, or Jewish fables. Right? So, in this age, you know, this, is, I think, is more insidious than in the Acts dispensation, because in this age, right, there could be certain even well-meaning Jews that are trying to honestly follow the law, right, but it has nothing to do with us. Now, in that age, in the Acts age, there were Jews who wanted to follow the law, and it, their, their mistake was trying to put Gentile believers under the law. That was their mistake. So Paul needed to take them and correct them. But remember, there was still an Israel. There still was Israel. And the, and the Old Covenant was slowly passing away. Right? So the Law and the Covenants were still Israel's property. They pertained to Israel. And they, if they had to be applied correctly. right? So Paul was correcting them in light of the Kingdom promises. So there was a place. There was a place in that age. Whereas in this age, the Law and the Covenants, therefore, are learning, but they have no place in our hope. Right? So that's a big difference. So in this age, in Titus, particularly, Paul makes it clear that those teachings, those teaching things, they just hope to profit from that confusion. Right? So I think there was something entirely different, and I think Paul's use of adjectives, as we'll see, makes that distinction between what the folks in the Acts were doing, which was just out of a, all they knew was Judaism, as opposed to today, where people, I think, are purposely using it, some people, for filthy gain, to get people back uh, into bondage. Uh, you'll see a lot of this uh, Sabbath-keeping movement. Uh, a lot of people uh, are taking uh, taking money from people and teaching them uh, Hebraic things that have really nothing to do with our age. So let's take a look at this Jewish fables being taught by these uh, Cretan Jews. They Remember, they claim Christ. Now I'm going to, Dr. Bullinger will help me a little bit here. Dr. Bullinger points us in two directions. Uh, 
in his notes on 1 Timothy 1. So 1 Timothy 1 is a very similar book to Titus, if you're familiar with it. But here's what he says about 1 Timothy 1, 4. Thank you, Tony. It says, Neither in heed to, to fables, myths, endless genealogy, fables or myths, same word, endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying in the faith. All right, that's the King James. Now, we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that, that Bollinger points out in a moment and some of the things I discovered. But um, I don't think I'm saying more than it's here, but Gabeline also notes an interesting thing on this verse. And here is a word-by-word word word translation. This is a word-by-word word translation of that verse. Nor to give heed to myths and genealogies and which speculations bring, rather than stewardship of God, which is in faith. Now, some of you, your ears just perked up because you caught that word, right? Stewardship. This is our word dispensation. Oikonomia, right? So you got to hang with me here. As Benjamin Franklin said in the Continental Congress, we must hang together. We will most certainly hang separately. Right? So... Bolger is going to point us in two directions, but let me talk about what Welch says about 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4, it is opposed to sound doctrine. It ministers questions, it ministers questions, and is contrary to, quote, a dispensation of God. This is Mr. Welch. The authorized version reads, godly edifying, but the revised version, however, has it as a dispensation of God. And the Greek, oikonomian, Dispensation is is there instead of Ocodomian, which is edifying. So dispensation of God is is more correct. Right? Uh, and then he adds this very serious word. This is this is from Charles Welch again. When it is realized that the two words mystery and myth are derived from the same source, it will be seen that when the truth of the mystery is withstood, there may be judicial turning in the mind to the myth. The turning away of 2 Timothy 4.4 is but the consequence of an earlier movement. All they which are in Asia be turned away from me, said Paul in chapter 1. And that fatal turning away from Paul that is so characteristic of much teaching today can but lead to apostasy of which Paul prophesied. Let us hold fast the faithful testimony of the mystery, even though all around us seem to be turning to their myths. The one is of God and of truth, and the other is of the devil and of the lie. That's Mr. Welch saying that. We shall need the whole armor of God, he continues, for the evil day is drawing near. The mystery is truth for the times. So, wow. Wow, when I read that, I thought, that's pretty pretty strong meat there from, from Mr. Welch. Right? So, uh, so if the day was drawing near on Mr. Welch's day when he wrote Dispensational Truth, uh, over half a century ago, <laughs> how much more relevant is Paul's warning to us today in 2022? Right? So now back to that word that I emphasized earlier, speculations, right? Questions, but speculations. It's the Greek word, ek, ek zeteus, right? So when I saw this, I noted, and you might have heard it, the modifier ek. So we're familiar with this modifier, because it's used by the Lord concerning his own resurrection, which confused the disciples who knew about resurrection, but they didn't know about an ek resurrection, and Paul in regard to the prize, the resurrection connected to the prize in Philippians. So this modifier ek, it sets these re resurrections apart from general understanding of resurrection, right? These are out from among the rest of the dead resurrections. So when we see ek zeteus, Right, right, the word there in speculations, it, it is its only use in scripture, which is interesting. But Zetaeus is used, just without the ek, seven other times, three times by Paul, all in post-Acts. And the sense of the word is used in the, it, back in previously, well, in the Gospel of John, and in the Acts age used by other writers, is general inquiry, debate, and, discu and discussion. I'm just popped into my ear. <laughs> so, Again, it's, it's a word that can mean inquiry and debate and general discussion and questions, right? But Paul does something different in his use of the word 
This just a, just a regular word, zetesis. Paul adds adjectives. Ignorant, foolish, controversial. Right? So Paul takes this word and leaves it with a bad connotation. When he's, it's not just an inquirer, a debater, a confusion, or a discussion. It's an ignorant. Right? It's speculating. It's speculating based on an ignorance. Right? It's going into a situation and making assumptions based on the wrong information. So when we add ak, right, I think this, this emphasizes out of. So in 1 Timothy 1.4, we have questions which become speculations. So normal inquiries and debates and discussions from legitimate concerns. Let's take a Let's see for a second, right? Just we all know that familiar where they got together to discuss question. Here are these Pharisees. We're keeping the law with these Gentiles now. What do they do? Well, the four necessary things, right? But that was a legitimate question. Now, it came out of their not quite understanding what Gentiles were doing. They didn't quite understand why God had, had brought the Gentiles and grafted them in. But it was a, a legitimate normal inquiry, right? It wasn't foolish or, or ignorant. Like, and and it didn't become mythical, like, but in this age, Paul uses adjectives, and these are more insidious speculations in this age. Thank you. So, you know, all these questions, whether they're honestly asked, as in Acts 15, or they're specifically asked to cause strife, right? In one way or another, they originate in the flesh, right? There's there's inquiry, which is going to the Lord saying, Lord, I, I want to understand this, please help me. And then in Acts 15, they didn't really want to understand. They just wanted Gentiles to obey the law, and that made the question arise. So, but now, in this age, Paul is telling us that, you know, there's, a, there's an ignorant and a foolish and a controversial questions that are rising out of people's flesh. Right? You ever dealt with somebody that they're so scoffing when you talk about your belief? You talk about the mystery, you talk about Ephesians, you talk about the differences in Scripture, you show them the differences in Matthew, you show them what Matthew said, are you really keeping that? Are you really doing that? Or the book of Acts saying, you're really doing that? You're really keeping that? Or even in the book of Romans, is this what we teach? Is this how we practice? Is this, what, is this the message that's going out today? They scoff. You know, not all of them, but you know, I haven't found too many that stop and go, well, let me... That's, that's a good, let me go take a look at that. Some will, some will. I'm not going to cast them. But uh, you get a lot of scoffing. Oh, you got into some something crazy. You know? Yeah, you're into some, I mean, Eric thing. You think you're smarter than everybody. You know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> right? So, uh, you know, getting back to this, there, there's no basis in previous dispensations, right, for, for them to see our, they couldn't see our calling, right? It was hidden, right? So, uh, so people teaching the Jewish fables in this age are especially confusing, right? So at least in the previous age, you could you could take what was in Judaism legitimately and say, where does it find its place? There is no place for the sacrifices, but there is a place for the Sabbath. There is a place for the feasts for for the Jews. There is a place for circumcision to some degree. There is a place for Jews first, right? In the kingdom, there is a place for the kingdom on earth. There is a place for hope on earth. Right? So there are parts of Judaism that were relevant. But in this age, right, there, there's, no, there's no function of the law outside of we know we are, it, it, it's profitable. But it has no function today. And so this is what people try to do. They try to drag the law in. Again, in the previous dispensation, you could, you could adjust it and talk about it and find your place. It has no place today. And so when people drag it in, it immediately is going to cause confusion. It's immediately going to cause controversy, these things that Paul warned us about. Right? So they become fables. They become myths because they have no place. There's nothing to do with it, apart from learn from it for Israel. Right? So we also have this idea coming in, and, and this, uh, I think Bill Welch and, and Gadeline brought up, is this idea that Gnosticism was coming in at this time, too. So I don't want to, I don't want to disregard that, but I'm not an expert on Gnosticism. So I'll just quote Mr. Welch on just a couple of things he said about Gnosticism. In the pastorals, the pastoral epistles, we find an incipient Gnosticism, which is a transitional form of Judaism, which developed in the Gnosticism. So that's 
what he says is sort of in the background of this as well, uh, in the first century. So some of the fables, and this is Mr. Welch again, that was an opinion expositor, back in Dispensational Truth, he says this, some of the fables mentioned by Paul appear to refer to the Kabbalistic interpretation of Scripture favored by the Gnostics. Now we see Kabbalism coming back today. Kabbalism is on the rise. Right? Continuing this passage is the fable considered as an innocent and useful mode of conveying truth, but as a weapon of the enemy. Again, there again. Right? So this is all getting mixed in. But it gets mixed in. It, gets, it fools people. It can be used to fool people today because they think somehow we're some sort of either spiritual Israel if they're really on one side, or even people who call themselves dispensationalists, they're practicing Jewish things. You know, we're going we're gonna to see that morning. So we've looked one way, right? Bollinger told us to look one way. That's the error of distorted Jewish fables that the Cretan Jews we're teaching, right? That's one direction. Just purposely error. It's it's uh, it's distorted Judaism. But there's also another direction we have to look in, right? So Paul points us and people in this age in in Colossians two. We're familiar with this passage, verses sixteen through twenty. This passage was very key for me to shed myself of my Catholicism, right? Because when I became a believer, I stayed in the Catholic Church for a while. Right? And this passage helped rescue me from that. So, this passage in, in Colossians 2, starting in verse 16 through 22, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Let no man judge you in meat or drink or respect of a holy day as a feast or new moon or the Sabbath days, which are shadows of things to come for Israel. But the body is of Christ. And no man beguile you. All right, so let's stop there. Paul says there's going to be men who are going to try to trick you. These are some of these men going for filthy lucre. Right? Of your reward. Right? We talked about that. That's what they're going to rob people from. Their reward. They can rob us of our reward. But they can rob, uh, rob people of ever discovering the unsearchable riches, right? In a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Remember, we talked about the place of the flesh, holding not to the head, from which all made by joints and bands having nourishment minister, increased with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why are you, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Right? So this covers even accurate readings of the law, because the even accurate readings of the law have no place for us in this age, apart from they teach us about God, and they teach us about God's plan, and they are things by which we can compare things that differ. Right? So there's no careful separation in this age, as they did in Acts 15 Acts 21, where they carefully went to... Leviticus 17, and carefully applied the law to Gentiles, took parts of the law, right? Because our focus isn't earthly, it's purely heavenly. So, so the law is good and holy, but it's become for many a hindrance to blessing. So we, we honor the law in its place, but careful to understand its purpose. So we haven't lost our instruction now, right? Back to stop the mouths of certain teachers. So, and we have this idea of Jewish fables going on in this dispensation, and, and we're looking to stop them out. So, so while we're still in 1 Timothy 1, let's not miss verse 8. Paul says, but if we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. This is in, if, it's conditional. Now, lawfully is a Greek word, no, 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 no. Gives them an end. <laughs> Lawfully. Right, this means properly. Like, I'm going to use the far above all translation. Our friends in London again. This is the far above all translations of, of 1 Timothy 1.8. And we know that the law is good if a person uses it legitimately. Legitimately. This is strong. This matches Strong's definition, right? So you're using the law legitimately. In a former age, they would have to use it legitimately, and then in this age we have to use it legitimately for our age, for its purpose, for understanding, right? As opposed to 
separating Jews and Gentiles in Leviticus 17 and all those things in a previous age. That nobody does, by the way. I mean, I've never met anybody who keeps the four nest things and separates from Jews. Right? But they all say they're Acts churches, and that's their pattern. And they're, they, let's follow the early church. I wrote about that recently as well. So, but now we don't want to miss this part about these endless genealogies, right? So Bullinger suggests that this is, again, a reference to Gnostic teaching that was creeping the never-ending emanations of eons that are part of Gnosticism. So we acknowledge that, but note that, that genealogy is connected to the earth again. Either way, it's, it's something that's connected to the earth, right? So the Greek word, genealogy, is, is almost identical to the English word. It's, it's, it's pretty much taken directly from the Greek into English, right? And we know it as it's a, it's a record of descent. It's a record of your lineage. Well, we know that of genealogy, which is connected to the earth. It's connected to the flesh. So we can apply this, you know, to the importance of tribe and family in the law. Do you ever know anybody who says, I'm reading through the Bible, and boy, it's tough to get through all those names, right? Well, of course it is, because those names don't mean anything to us. But they mean an awful lot to the Lord, and the tribes mean an awful lot to the Lord. And the line of David means an awful lot to the Lord, means an awful lot to Israel, means an awful lot to the kingdom on earth. All right? The son of David is key for the Lord. So in Matthew and Luke, as we know, we have the lineage, the genealogy of the Lord back to David, Abraham, and back to Adam and Luke. Right? So this is very important for them. But for us, he's the son of God. As John doesn't have a genealogy there, he's the son of God. He is our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes. So his lineage through David is not particularly relevant to our standing, right, or our hope. In fact, even in the book of Matthew, it's unimportant because you know the Canaanite woman comes to the Lord in Matthew 15, calls him son of David, and he says, "What do I have to do with you, woman? I wasn't sent to you, son of David. I'm king of Israel." And then she says, "Lord," and he says, "The little dogs." eat the food that falls from the children's table. And the Lord said, I don't give the, the children's meat to dogs. Right? But then when she comes to him and says, no, not son of David, Lord. Right? Right? He is, he's Lord. Right? So even there we get a glimpse of, of, of the Lord's separation of his, his, his full place as God and his place as the son of David in the kingdom. Right? So let me read this passage. This is 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 9. And I'm going to be in the far above all. Feel free to read along in the King James Version. I just like the way it cut some of the words we're translated here in the far above all translation. Again, so this is 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 9. We're probably going to have to wrap it up here in a couple minutes. I was on my way to Macedonia in order that you might command some not to teach extraneous doctrines, nor to heed fables or interminable genealogies which give rise to disputes rather than a dispensation of God in faith. And the goal of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a clear conscience, an unfeigned faith from which things have deviated and have turned away to idle talk, wanting to be teachers of the law, but understanding neither what they say nor the things pertaining to what they assert. And we know that the law is good if a person uses it legitimately, knowing this, that the law is not instituted for a righteous person, but for the lawless and unruly and for the ungodly and sinners, for the irreverent and the profane, etc. So, in this age, when we say we talk about the law, we tell people, okay, go read the law. Are you following that law? It's meant to convict. Right? That's all it can do. It has no other place. So, right? And so, the apostle, he frames this warning concerning these teachings of extraneous doc doctrines, the Greek there is deviating truth, heterodoxy, would be the, uh, how we pull that word in English, on the one hand, and then turning to idle talk. Right? Idle talk. This is the Greek idea here is a vain and empty talk. Right? So, and remember, the whole context here is these are believers, or professing believers at least, these are coming in the name of Christ. They call themselves teachers, but they deviate from the faith of Paul. Right? Those that abandoned him in Asia didn't abandon Christ. They abandoned Paul. But, but Christ had sent Paul with a message. So 
in effect, they would be rejecting Christ because he sent Paul with this message for the sage alone. So they don't necessarily deviate from the truth of life through grace alone, but likely they deviate from Paul's gospel of the fullness of grace in the current age. And Paul, the completer, the recognition of Paul as the completer of God's revelation. They fail to recognize the head of the body, and they fail to recognize the current calling and hope. So we can say with some confidence that these teachers in our passage are within Timothy's influence. Timothy, Paul would not bother commanding outside teachers or warning of outside teachers. These teachers give rise to disputes among the believers there. So Paul and Timothy and Titus in this, right? So the truths that we know from Ephesians and Colossian epistles, they're really comparative, right? They're deep. They're deep. But once you sift through tradition, right, once you sift through tradition, and you see the context of what Paul is writing in Ephesians and Colossians, and the other epistles, but those two particularly because they have so much truth in them about the characteristics of this age, they, it can be seen. It can be understood. It's beautiful. Right? But so many teachers today bring so much complexity. They bring complexity. Right? They, they fail to compare the things that differ. They try to, they try to mesh the di different things together. They try to massage them, the different ideas. And they either discard the difference or they give it some sort of esoteric complexity. So if the Lord says something that doesn't fit, like if a man calls his friend Raka, you know, you know, take him, take him to the Sanhedrin or toss him into Gehenna fire. What do they do with that? That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, well the Lord was making a point, and they make it very complex for people to understand. And so somebody goes, well, it, it looks plain to me, but I can't understand it. I'm going to sit in my pew and listen to my preacher. Right? So these teachers, some of them willingly, and some of them unknowingly, and some of them in pure ignorance, they make something that's clear, very murky. They make it misunderstood. So they make a simple answer into something very complex. So it forces... I mean, I talk to people sometimes going, I don't know how you can't see this. I think it's so clear. You know, I think it's so abundantly clear. How do you get through the book of Acts? How do you get through the book of Matthew? How do you get through the book of Romans? How do you get through that without seeing these, these differences? Without seeing these clear statements from the Lord, which... Which, what do you do with it? But then they have a teacher somewhere. So, well, you need to go to listen to this teacher. Here's a video. He'll explain to you why Jesus isn't really saying what he's saying. Right? He's making a point. They do that with, a, with you know, the, the things they call simple are the parables, which the scripture tells us aren't simple. <laughs> Jesus said these things are, I talk to them in parables so that they won't understand. Right? Parables are very difficult unless you have the context of understanding. Right? So it's, it's just all flipped around and confused. <clears throat> if, you, if, you, if you know any false teachers or cults, I mean, they spend an awful lot of time in the parables because they can twist and turn them any way they want, right? So, <clears throat> anyway, so <clears throat> this is Paul's instruction to compare the things that differ, right, from Philippians 1.10. So we allow Scripture to divide itself, to interpret itself. So when we do that, we're safe from man's traditions. Right? And it's confused, there's confusion. When we read the actors in the envelope, we won't get caught up in the complex practice of trying to piece together these things. So our passage in 1 Timothy, Paul has a very harsh assessment concerning those who abuse the law in the current age. So, you know, quote, understanding neither what they say nor the things pertaining to what they assert. That's pretty, pretty damning. He accuses them of, of ignorance of really basic theology. You know, could Paul be more clear that the laws for the lawless, he can be more clear in this age for those outside of Christ? Paul doesn't care if somebody holds a THD or a DDiv, if that person fails to rightly divide. It means nothing to him. He doesn't say, well, don't listen to these teachers unless they have a degree. Right? So, and I would say the Holy Spirit's verdict from his passages is, you don't even understand what you're saying you know, to these teachers. 
Here's First Timothy 1 from far above all, knowing this, that the law has not been instituted for righteous persons, but for the lawless and unruly, for the ungodly and sinners, for the irreverent and profane, those who commit patricide and matricide, killing of their father and mother, murderers, fornicators, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, anything else that might be contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, to which Paul had been entrusted. Paul's gospel, right? right let's see how far away I am from actually ending. Uh, I'm a little bit far away. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up the reins here, and we'll start here next time because we're, we're 20 minutes in. And uh, I did want to... I did want to pray, and uh, hopefully that was clear tonight. Like I said, I, I bit off a lot with this. Just from that, just from when, when Cecil read that verse, and, and I said, let me go look at that. Get them. Stop the mouths. Mouths, you must be stopped. Wow. What, what, Paul is really challenging us, right? So uh, anyway, when I started digging deep into that, boy, so much, uh, I was just going all over and, and seeing all these warnings from the apostles. So I thank you for your patience tonight as we as we walk through this, and we'll continue from this point next time. Let me make a mark here so I know. <laughs> All right. Again, thank you for your patience. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you, Father, that when you look down upon us, you see you see creatures, Father, that are limited. Father, we have decaying minds, decaying bodies. Father, we, we, we struggle to understand things sometimes. Father, but you've given us the key. We thank you so much. You've enlightened us under the truth. The key of comparing things to different. The key of the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, Father. The key. The key, Father. The key that opens us up. Father, the key of understanding. The key of understanding stewardships. The key of understanding the dispensations, Father. We thank you, Father. And as we struggle even with some of these verses, Father, we know that you'll protect us from terrible error because you'll keep bringing us back. You'll keep bringing us back, Father, to yourself. You'll bring us back to the body. You'll bring us back to the head. You'll bring us back to the truth of the book of Ephesians. We thank you so much for that, Lord. It's such a comfort, Father. Your patience is such a comfort for us. Bless each one here, Father. Bless our words, Father. If there's anything that touched their heart, Father, I, I pray that you continue to, to help me as I go forward in this study. And uh, bless our group, Father, and, and bless each one here and the, and the homes that are represented, Father, and the witness that is represented all over this great nation of ours, Father. Please, this nation, I know the nation's in decay, Lord, but please, Father, use us, use us. And we ask all this in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.